Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about why Portland public school teachers are now on strike for the first time ever, how the city is going to start enforcing its camping ban, and why you won't be buying liquor at the grocery store anytime soon. Joining me on this week's News Roundup are Willamette Week's Dive podcast host and Potlander column writer Brianna Wheeler and our very own audio producer, Julia Fiaioni. It's Friday, November 3rd. I'm lead producer John Natariani in for Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Brianna, Julia, thanks for joining me on the Roundup today. Thanks, John. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Brianna, you're a regular guest, but this isn't the only thing that you do in your life. You wear many hats, and uh, (laughs) you've got a book coming out, right? And you've got an event next week. Tell us about it. I do. Actually, the book is out. The book is out now. The book is out. (gasps) The book is out. Uh, It's called Altogether Different. And it's a memoir that traces my family history back, all the way back to preceding the Civil War, to a battle um, called the Raid at Harper's Ferry. Mm. And uh, I I have an ancestor who died there, and he was the first Black man to die in John Brown's army. It's a fascinating story. Oh um, mm-hmm. And this was my grandmother's life. life's work, was uh, all this genealogy work. When she passed away, I, um, instead of an inheritance, I said, this is my inheritance. And I took all of her genealogy work and I organized it all. And so that's one part of my memoir. The other part of my memoir is the other half of the inheritance, which my family was fighting over while I was writing about our history mm. before the Civil War. So it kind of like bounces around those two perspectives. And there's going to be a launch event at Powell's. Yeah. And I hear it's featuring one of Portland's biggest superstars as well. Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah. Me. What? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, Our lovely friend Claudia Meza is going to be there and we're going to be having a conversation about the book. She's going to be asking me questions and we're going to have a great little kiki about it. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm going to be there in the audience cheering both y'all on. Um, (laughs) Me too. It's going to be super fun. Um, In the spirit of that, though, for the opening question, I was thinking about Powell's and how it's easy to get lost at Powell's. And I'm wondering, like, if the three of us were hanging out and we got separated, what is the section at Powell's where if you just wander away, you're going to end up in that bookstore? Mm -hmm. I'll go first because I already know I will be in the blue room which is like fiction. And uh, I will probably be up against the back wall where they have like all the local zines and like small self-published stuff from local authors. Mm. That's where I'll be. What about you guys? We're going to find you looking through Altogether Different because that's where yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> <that> back shelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will definitely be at the, there's like a, a small back wall somewhere like in the back left of the store. I don't know what section it is, but it's poetry and prose. Mm-hmm. That's been my favorite for since I've moved here two years ago. And it I always find something that I can relate to. So you'll find me digging through. Are we in the same section, Julia? Possibly, John. We may not even lose each other. Are, do, are we just like so deep in our books Aww. that we didn't notice that we're standing right next to each other? Aww. That's so sweet. Brianna, are you there too? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've spent so much time there. I have so many selfies there. Oh, no. I'm right around the corner in um, in graphic novels. Oh, That's yeah. where you're going to find me. So we'll all meet up at the cafe then. We're all right there. 
Well, let's get into it. A lot of news this week. A lot of uh, big stories that we've sort of been poking around at are starting to come to a head. Uh, Brianna, why don't you get us started? The big news of the week. This is huge. This is what I was talking about last time I joined y'all on the show. Is the teacher strike. And I was so completely prepared for it to happen on October 1st. Um, but it did happen on November 1st. And it affects 4,500 teachers. And oh my gosh, all of the students. Um, so the negotiations um, over the teacher's contract, those expired all the way in June. Yeah. And they've been going back and forth for a year. Um, the teachers want smaller class sizes. They want more time to plan their classes. And this could potentially lead to mass layoffs over the next three years. Um, and the governor is like, hey, I don't know. I, this seems irresponsible to commit to these things that you've been asking for for so long. They've been at this impasse for a while. And if you have children, of course, this will affect you if you have school-aged children. Um, <laughs> if you have children and this is the first you're hearing about it, like, <laughs> oh boy. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've been getting um, these emails. We've been getting emails since October, like, maybe we're going to strike. Like, we're getting the information in such these teensy, teensy increments. And I felt like I was privy to, like, I had, like, a special line in because my son is autistic. He's a special needs kid. So he was having home instruction during summer. So mm -hmm. when everybody else's kids were out, I was, like, talking to a teacher who was very much going through it in my house mm -hmm. every day. And she was like really spilling tea. I will not disclose her name. Um, the, the major tea was because she's a special education instructor. A lot of those kids need, um, it needs to be one-on-one. -on -one. Those needs need to be met. It's our mm -hmm. constitutional right to have these needs met. Yep. And you cannot pack a classroom with special needs children and like three instructors. Yeah. Um, so we'll kind of see how this shakes out. Uh, everybody's standing really firm. I mean, Julia, we were talking about this before we started taping, and you were saying that you were just keeping an eye on how much more complicated this is than it looked initially, right? Yeah, I had not realized that a lot of this boils down to not receiving proper funding from the state of Oregon generally, and how they've put out this model for quality education, where they they state that you need this amount of money to be able to um, run schools at a quality education level, but they're not actually providing that amount of money, mm -hmm. which just sounds ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And if that's where we're starting, I can't imagine how complicated it's been to try to work this out over the past year and just how frustrating and grueling the process is, knowing that that's where it stems from. Mm -hmm. um, and then knowing also that this impacts around 45,000 kids yeah. just in Portland public schools alone. Mm -hmm. Like that number is massive. That's a stadium full of kids yeah. in Portland right now. Yeah, the number I saw was 49,000, which is just like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Even larger there. Right. Wild. That's a whole stadium full of kids that are aimlessly around town right now, just trying to seek guidance from the adults in their lives that are also having a hard time knowing where to go with this, right? Or we could actually just put them all in a stadium. <laughs> Providence Park. Actually, I know. I don't think they would fit in Providence Park. Providence Park's like 20 or 30,000, right? 30-something, 30 yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, now that this has hit the impasse, I really started digging in on some of the numbers here. You know, the scale of this is crazy. The teachers are, you know, sort of 
at an impasse over $200 million. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I saw this stat from the Oregonian that, like, if you're going to come up with $200 million in raises for teachers, that would require the district to cut, quote, the equivalent of 288 teachers from somewhere in the budget. Like, that's not saying that they're going to then have to actually do that, but, like, that much money needs to be made up somewhere else with the current mm-hmm. funding structure. Um, which like, I mean, I think goes to what you're saying, Julia, is that like, this is probably a sign that like the education system just like needs more funding in general. In general. And that, that, mm-hmm. that sort of becomes a state problem. Yeah. Everything that I've heard also is that like the coffers are full, like the Oregon state coffers are overflowing full. But I remember talking to Rachel Saslow at the Willamette Week several months ago, probably sometime uh, in the summer about the way that a lot of our neighborhood schools fundraise also do their own fundraising. And that is off the hook, too. Uh, a lot of the schools have, like, millions of dollars just because of where they are. Because they, yeah. uh, parents are throwing these extravagant events to raise money, and it just stays in that school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I am, like, so sympathetic to, like, where parents are. You know, I, I was talking with a friend who's sort of like, look, there's still, like, a lot of rage over how kids were treated during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and that like so many parents feel like they were sort of just like thrust out into the world without enough support, um, and that like it, on one hand parents are like, well, I kind of know how to do this because we mm-hmm. just went through this whole thing yeah. for several years, but like it still kind of feels like a fresh wound, and it's like, oh, of course, like once again, you know, we have to figure out what to do with all of our kids, and it and and it has been interesting to sort of see this like cottage child care industry like pop up out of nowhere, you know. <laughs> Like yeah. friends of mine who are parents are saying they're getting random emails from organizations that are just like, hey, you got a kid who needs to, who needs to be taken care of for a couple of days? We'll send him over our way. <laughs> yeah. So creepy, kind of. <laughs> Which makes me want to pitch uh, CityCast Portland. If your kid. <laughs> Pod camp. If you don't want him to have screen time, but you want him to be distra- to be entertained, to be educated, just pop in that feed. We'll try and keep the curse words to a minimum. <laughs> There's a couple episodes you might want to skip, but like, yeah, you know, you can <laughs> skip my episodes. <laughs> Brianna, at this point, like, where is this going? You know, do we have any sense of how long this strike is going to go or what needs to happen to get it done? Like the reporting that I've been seeing has just sort of been, I don't know. Like, yeah, do you have any it insights? is very that yeah. because the, mm-hmm. uh, my friends that are teachers, it's like, man, we don't know what's happening because mm-hmm. everyone is just so like. I know what the teachers need because I've been in the classrooms. I'm saying I got these friends, I got these homies, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely empathize. It's ridiculous what they have to deal with and how much, yeah. how out of pocket they have to come for Portland's children. And a lot of these people do not have kids. Like yeah. mm-hmm. they're just, they're here for our kids. Yeah. Um, and for someone, it's like, nah, nah, we can't do it. Meanwhile, right over the border, right? I think it was in Camus, they went on strike and had their, uh, demands met immediately, almost immediately. Yeah. Mm. Is it bureaucracy? Is it uh, who knows? But um, the teachers don't because they're just like, please, what? No, we're going to stay asking for what we're asking for because we're not really even asking for that much. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Camus in Washington. I'd actually um, met someone who's a third grade teacher out there. And when they told me that they were a third grade teacher, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And then he's like, oh, no, it's okay. I'm in Washington. I know teachers in Oregon get paid so poorly. Mm -hmm. So I get why you would respond like that. 
but I'm, I'm actually okay. And I was like, wow, wow. there's a reputation. Yes. And that's a problem. Because he drives off in his Corvette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, back to Seattle. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, we're everyone is well aware that the cost of living in Portland has become unfucking bearable. Um, mm-hmm. It costs $100,000 a year to live here comfortably, just mm-hmm. to live a regular life here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, I mean, are we really going to look a teacher in the face and say, yeah, you you shouldn't really be able to afford to live here. Mm-mm. And even if you're not a parent, if you're just sympathetic to this, you can check out um, a couple of different resources. Maybe even, um, I was on like Scrap, Scrap's website, Scrap mm. PDX, you know, everyone's mm-hmm. favorite. And they had resources. There are places, uh, spots you can go and join these protests. If you're sympathetic, come out and make noise with the teachers, um, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I have seen some of my friends who are uh, parents taking their kids out to the protest. And the kids look like they're having so much fun. Fuck yeah. Like, how much fun would that, like, get to yell with a bunch of adults? Like, yes. that sounds awesome. <laughs> and seeing your teachers outside of school being radicals? Come on. Yeah, yeah. I'm into it. Mm. All right, you guys, let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, let's do some more news of the week. All right, Julia, uh, what story are you looking at this week? So my headline is from Alex Zielinski at OPB, and it's about Portland beginning to enforce its ban on homeless camping on public property starting November 13th. So Mayor Ted Wheeler, he made an announcement at a press conference on Monday laying all this out, noting that he's advised Portland police to focus on enforcing the ban specifically in areas that are the most problematic. Um, But I'll break down what this looks like real quick as a reminder. Mm -hmm. So there's no camping allowed on public property from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., but also no camping overnight on specifically listed public property like riverbanks, parks, and busy streets. Not limited to that, but those are some of the big ones. Now there's a digital map of where not to camp, and we'll link it in the show notes, Mm -hmm. but at a quick glance, there are a lot of areas where there are a red no camping zone, which makes you wonder, and Alex points this out in her article, why isn't there just a map where people can camp? It might just be simpler (laughs) that way. But anyway... In the case that someone does find somewhere legal to rest, the law also now prohibits fires and propane heaters alongside erecting temporary structures and digging into the ground at the resting site. And if any of these rules are broken, officers can issue up to two warnings. And then on the third warning, there can either be a $100 fine or up to a month-long sentence in jail. But according to police chief Bob Day, who became chief less than a month ago, by the way, Enforcement will be on a complaint-driven basis rather than reactive. Mm -hmm. Um, But to back up just a little bit, this all stems from a law that passed a couple years ago by Oregon lawmakers. So technically, federal law says the city can't arrest people for sleeping on public property if there isn't enough shelter space available, which in this case, Multnomah County currently has roughly twice as many people who are homeless than there are available shelter beds. But in 2021... Oregon legislature passed House Bill 3115, giving cities the right to establish objectively reasonable rules about where, when, and how people can rest on public property. And back in September, after a group of people who were houses filed a lawsuit against the city over the camping ban, city attorneys claim the new policy actually meets the objectively reasonable requirement. 
What are your thoughts? Uh, <laughs> anytime lawmakers pass a law that includes the phrase objectively yeah. reasonable, I feel like you know you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that is just like opening up a giant target to be like, well, what is objectively reasonable? If you need to say that phrase, this is going to be something that is going to be really difficult to nail down. And that is exactly what's happening here. Quote unquote, objectively reasonable is like the most subjective thing imaginable in this case. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of other language of, like, problematic areas and selective enforcement. It's Ooh. like, that isn't really objective at all, that. and everybody's confused. Yeah, <laughs> I hate selective enforcement. Oh, my yeah. gosh. You, you just want it all enforced, mm. right, Brianna? You just want them all. <laughs> just, <laughs> you want total enforcement, right? I'm almost thinking, like, are, are we really going to be sending people to jail for being homeless well, I, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. just started to get cold too. This is too much. I mean, the thing that just is sort of stewing my brain about this is that Bob Day, police chief, says, you mentioned Julia, he expects that the band is going to be more complaint driven than reactive, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of how it works already, right? Like, think about like what happened along Laurelhurst, like that mm -hmm. whole area got cleared out, not because it was objectively more dangerous or anything. It was just because like the residents nearby raised a stink about it. And I think mm -hmm. that like that is going to continue to be the sort of city policy in the areas where people have, you know, a easier access to speak to the city and like get their neighborhoods yeah. cleared out, then people are going to be pushed into other areas. Um, What's the, um, like what's going on with Wheeler camps? That's the point, right? Is to drive everybody mm -hmm. into these Wheeler camps. What's that mm -hmm. looking like? We just got a new one. We just got a new <laughs> one. Yeah, they just announced that they're <laughs> opening one in St. John's. Um, mm -hmm. It's the second of the six uh, large-scale sanctioned homeless campsites. Julia, are you looking at this? Yeah, I know a little bit about the one that's currently open. Mm -hmm. And there are 180 people who are resting in that village specifically. And it's one of the things Wheeler brought up as something that will fill the gaps to accommodate people who are being forced off the streets. But the fact that only the second out of six is planned to be open at this point makes me feel very unsure of that being possible because there aren't enough beds available to accommodate an additional 2,000 people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, you know, as a St. John's resident, I was looking into this. And it's interesting because where it is, um, if you know St. John's, there's sort of like the like residential area. Then there's like a pretty big stretch of like kind of industrial type land before you get to like Marine Drive by the river. Mm -hmm. The camp is going into that area, you know, so it's on mm -hmm. one hand very clearly like not near a bunch of residential neighborhoods. But it also is going to be a really difficult place for people to get in and out of, you know? It's not an area mm. that has, like, a ton of public transit. It's not close to a lot of services. Um, yeah. And they did say that it's going to be, like, largely for, like, RVs and camper vans, you know? So people oh. who at least theoretically have some form of transit. But there also are going to be tents and tiny pod-style homes there. Um, but, yeah, I really hope that we don't get to a point where we are just sort of like isolating people in these camps uh, away from the services mm -hmm. that they need. You know, I love living yeah. in St. John's. It's really far from downtown, you know, and if you yeah. need mm -hmm. to access city services, that could be tricky. Yeah. One good thing um, that was mentioned in Zelensky's story was that the City Street Services Coordination Center is training police on how to prioritize getting people into housing 
and connected to services over punitive measures. So there is some attention placed on that. But So I got a wild idea. <laughs> oh, no, John. <laughs> what if we created a bureau of the city that is not police, that is purely designed to engage with people who are having mental health crises? Yeah. Wild. Wait. Wild idea. We did do that. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and it's been in like constant sort of like political bickering ever since. <laughs> mm-hmm. What a wild idea. Wild. Yeah. And now they're just training the police to do the same damn thing. Ugh. <laughs> so we'll see where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, looking ahead, Julia, are there any, um, any things that you're going to be keeping an eye on? Anything that you think is really important to look at as this gets implemented in two weeks? I just think wait for what that will look like, at least downtown in 10 days. I think that area will be very telling as uh, to how people are feeling and, and what's going on. Um, so just, I don't know, be an observant pedestrian and and look out for people and see how those interactions play out. I think that's where it'll be most clear. Mm, yeah. Um, well, for my story, uh, I wanted to take a look at this story that was written by Nigel Jaquis at Willamette Week. Uh, the Northwest Grocery Association just said that they're not going to push to privatize liquor sales in 2024. So this has sort of been this ongoing question um, of like, you know, grocers want to be able to sell liquor. And like in a lot of states, you can do that. Oregon is still a state that is a control state, um, but that's why you can only get liquor at like a smattering of little, you know, sort of state-licensed stores across the city. And there had been this expectation that they were going to push to privatize liquor sales. And it would make sense that it would happen this year because, holy moly, we've seen a lot of headlines that has not made the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission look good over the last 12 months. Um, You know, you remember that there was the whole bourbon scandal where executives were sort of setting aside fancy bottles of liquor for themselves and their friends. Um, You know, there was the whole Shamia Fagan scandal that led her, the Secretary of State, getting pushed out of office and, like, all of the concerns about the cannabis industry audit that have come from there. Like, the OLCC is not looking great. But Mm. they've got at least another year. The Grocery Association has decided they are not going after that ballot initiative in 2024. Mm. What do you guys think? I just want to know why. Why not seize the opportunity? Well, um, one of the issues that they gave is because we have a state-run system, and to like actually get that transitioned into a taxing system is going to be really complicated. Like, it's not like the OLCC mm. does nothing. They they allocated something like more than six hundred million dollars in the like twenty twenty one to twenty twenty three budget cycle, and that goes to a lot of that goes to the general fund and like pays for schools and police and public health and stuff like that. Like that mm. comes from liquor sales, um, mm-hmm. and to sort of create a system of like taxation for that is like really sticky. Um, but I also just think it like you know these are lobbying organizations like my hunch would be that they just sort of read the political wins and decided that they 
weren't confident that they had enough support to make it happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like traditionally across the country, it's sort of been like these sort of vice-oriented laws are really, really hard to change because it just sort of turns you into a political target for your opposition to say like, <laughs> John Natariani is pro-liquor. Like, doesn't, doesn't he hate families? He just wants liquor on every corner, you know? <laughs> and like, and there are real consequences, you know? Washington sort of privatized the sale of liquor about 10 years ago and people started drinking more, you know, <laughs> like, right. like, like there's documented wow. evidence from the national yeah. institutes of health that like, you know, there was way more liquor out there that's accessible to people. But I don't know. Do you ever go into another state and like, you know, you're shopping at the grocery store and then they have like bottles of whiskey sitting there that you can buy alongside your like eggs. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's unusual that Oregon doesn't do that. That's actually more of the standard model across the country. But anytime I am out of state and I see that, I'm just like, you can just like impulse buy a bottle of whiskey while you're like shopping for for broccoli. Like that seems weird to me. You can get it at like the gas station. At the gas station. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to get some fireball and I'm going to fill my tank. Yeah. (laughs) When I first moved to Oregon from California, I threw a party and I did not know that you couldn't get liquor at the grocery store. I thought I was throwing a cocktail party. And then the day of my party came and I was like, oh no, oh no. I didn't know where a liquor store was. I was from California where you go to a grocery store and you get whiskey like God intended. Um, (laughs) John, do you know if they were to privatize in the future, if that would make things more expensive for the consumer? Um, There's a lot of back and forth about this in the data. Um, Mm -hmm. Some places say that, like, no, the free market regulates itself. Um, Some places say, like, oh, it'll absolutely raise prices. Um, Two data points, so take these what you will. It does tend to lead to higher taxes, you know? So, like, Mm -hmm. right now, Oregon sets the price of, like, what a bottle of gin is going to cost. But after Washington privatized its whole industry... Washington now has the nation's highest taxes on liquor. Um, Mm -hmm. So taxes going up, very normal thing to happen in this case. And there was a 2019 report from this group called the Alcohol Research Group that says that, you know, right after Washington privatized, liquor prices went up about 15%, which like, you know, I guess if you like want to get your whiskey, it's like, no. But like, I think that a lot of people who are concerned about if the accessibility of it goes up, that like then raising the prices can like sort of offset some of that societal risk as well. So mm. like, mm. you know, maybe it's not the worst thing for like alcohol to be a little bit more expensive. Mm. And, it, and it is surprising because it does seem like this is would have been the year that it like sort of community faith in this uh, agency is at an all time low. <laughs> <laughs> Get it together, OLCC. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Stop dipping into your own stock, right? Give up the pappy. <laughs> yeah. All right, you guys. Well, thanks for kicking it around with me this morning and for uh, wrapping up this week of news. And, uh, yeah, Brianna, we will see you next Wednesday, November 8th. That's right. 7 o'clock. Yes. At Powell's. All together different. Woohoo! Can't wait. It's going to be great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, John. 
Well, that's all for us today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening, though. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really love it if you told a friend about it or left us a rating or a review. Our audio producers this week were Julia Fiaioni, Noah Snyderman, and Natalie Rivera. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, and our host is Claudia Meza. I'm lead producer John Natariani. Original music by Jenny Conley and Stephen Drisos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound and All the Kimonos. We'll be back on Monday morning with much more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. Slim's.